Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 695 for the 29th of May, 2020. This week, your internet service provider has a domain name server, but you don't have to use it. There are good reasons why you might want to ditch the provided service and use a better one. The change is easy to make, you'll get better service, and it won't cost anything. In short circuits, computers that run on Mac OS are less of a target than those running Windows, but threats do exist. Let's consider some of the protective measures. Those who miss the variety that radio used to provide can use a clever service to find and listen to radio stations all over the world. In spare parts, only on the website, COVID-19 is forcing many changes, among them making security systems at financial institutions stronger, ways for people to enjoy an at-home vacation, expected changes in work-from-home policies by companies, and huge increases in at-home data consumption. Also, 20 years ago, the trial to break up Microsoft was nearing an end with an order that broke Microsoft into two pieces. Except that it really didn't. Is our internet service provider really slow today, or is it just me? That's a question that popped up in a neighborhood group on Facebook recently. The conversation led to a discussion of domain name service settings because some people saw slowdowns while others didn't. The three-letter internet service provider being discussed provides what may be the worst DNS in Ohio, if not on the planet. And DNS is an essential piece of what makes the internet work. DNS is largely invisible, though. Internet service providers like Wide Open West, Spectrum, Comcast, AT&T, and others all provide their own DNS servers, and those are likely the ones you're using unless you have done something to change them. So the obvious questions are, why make a change if the ISP provides the service, and why is the domain name service so important? Okay, let's start with that second one first. The Internet has no idea what TechBiter.com is or where it is. The operation is a lot like the ancient telephone systems that depended on an operator saying, number please, when the user picked up the telephone, or used the crank on the side of the phone, and yes, that predates even me. After the caller gave the operator the name or number of the person they wanted to speak to, the operator plugged a cable into the socket on the console and rang the phone belonging to the person being called. When the person answered, the operator dropped off the line, maybe, so that the conversation could be private, except for anybody who might be listening in, if you had a party line. Well, that's similar to what happens when you type techbiter.com into the address line of a browser and press enter. The browser sends a signal that's intercepted by the domain name service at the internet service provider. 
the DNS has a gigantic lookup table that lists the Internet protocol address or IP address of every known domain. So it searches through the table until it finds techbiter.com, and then it learns that this is associated with IP address 67.222.41.89. The DNS then forwards your browser's request to the Internet backbone that has its own routing tables to explain, in computer speak, how to get to 67.222.41.89. What happens next is anybody's guess. Actually, it is a little more predictable than that, but the connection might go from suburban Columbus to Cleveland, Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, and then Orem, Utah. But it might also connect from Columbus through Washington, Dallas, Denver, and San Francisco, and then to Orem, Utah. The route varies because the applications that run the Internet try to identify the best route at any given time. So this is what the operator did in the old phone system. But does the operator then step out of the way? Maybe, but probably not. The Internet service provider can see everything sent from or received by your computer unless you have an encrypted connection that uses a virtual private network. That's a story for another time. We're supposed to be talking about the domain name service now, so maybe it's time to get back to the main topic. If the DNS your Internet service provider uses is inefficient or slow, and most ISPs have inefficient and slow DNS systems, the connection will take longer. That's why it's important for the domain name service to be fast and reliable. So the most obvious reason for not using your Internet service provider's DNS is that most third-party domain name servers are better and faster. Here's a silly example. Type goggle.com, G-O-G-L-E dot C-O-M, not Google, goggle. Type that into your browser's address bar. Some companies do register common misspellings of their domain names, but Google has not registered Goggle. The Internet Service Provider's DNS might tell the browser that it can't locate an IP address for that domain, and the browser will then display a server not found message. I can't demonstrate that with Goggle because of a clever trick my third-party DNS uses. It simply knows that's a common misspelling for Google, and automatically redirects. So for demonstration purposes, I entered the domain name sfsdwesf.com. That domain definitely does not exist. You'll see a screenshot of what happens on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Third-party DNS servers often know about common misspellings, so when I type Goggle into the address line, I'll still get to Google's main page. Third-party DNS servers also sometimes know about sites that are used for phishing or that serve malware and they will warn you before taking you there. Some browsers have stepped in to help with that function, but it doesn't hurt to have a DNS that watches your back. Two of the best-known third-party domain name service providers are OpenDNS and Google. If you have just a single computer, changing the DNS settings will depend on the operating system the computer uses, and that complicates the process a bit. Fortunately, HowToGeek has an outstanding summary that explains how to change the DNS settings for Windows and Mac OS computers, Android and iOS phones and tablets, and even Chromebook systems. I have a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Because most people have multiple computing devices at home, and they're all connected to a router that connects to or is part of the Internet Service Provider's modem, we'll take a look at how to make a router change.
I'll be demonstrating this with a Netgear Nighthawk X10R9000 router, but every router, every router will have similar settings. They may use slightly different words, but the settings will be there. Start by opening the router's control panel, and before going any further, look for any messages about firmware updates. If one exists for your router, download it and install it, because virtually all updates for router firmware address security issues. Updating the firmware will require a router restart, so make sure anybody who's connected to the internet via the router knows that you're going to break their connection. In other words, you'd be wise to wait, if somebody's working from home, until the end of the workday. Also, if you have never changed the router's administrative password, do that while you're here. Most manufacturers create an administrator account that's almost always called admin, and it almost always has a password of either admin or password. Leaving those in place is dangerous. You probably can't change the username, but you can change the password. Do that. Now that the housekeeping measures are out of the way, take a look on the router's interface for something called Internet, or WAN, or modem, or external, something that clearly implies an outbound signal. Click that and then locate a section that refers to the DNS address. You'll probably see a checkbox, and it will be checked. The checkbox will be listed Get Automatically from ISP. That's what you want to change. Either clear the checkbox in the Get Automatically from ISP, or click the option to specify your own, however your router's interface displays it. Then fill in the IP addresses for one of the third-party providers. The user interface probably has spaces for three DNS entries. You need only two. I have listed the IP addresses on the TechBiter Worldwide website for OpenDNS and Google DNS. My preference is Google's DNS, but either choice is fine. Just be sure that you get the numbers exactly right. Once you fill in the numbers, some routers require that you click a button to update the setting. Others save the settings automatically. And if you want to try one of the other DNS providers, there are several. There's AdGuard, DNS, Alternate DNS, Clean Browsing, Cloudflare, Quad9, VeriSign, and even more than that. All of these are free for non-commercial or home use. If you run a business with dozens or hundreds of computers, you will need to sign up for a commercial plan. If you're working from home for a business, that still comes under the home use. Now, I said the router will probably have three slots for DNS IP addresses. I generally fill in only two, the primary and secondary, for a single provider. The router will query the primary server first, then move to the second if it encounters a problem. Adding a third DNS entry would give the router a third option if there's a problem with both the primary and the secondary. I've never felt the need, but some people recommend using three different services. For example, Google for the primary, OpenDNS for the secondary, and VeriSign for the tertiary. Making this change is easy, and it might improve your browsing experience. The domain name service is also used by any other program or application on the computer that needs to connect to any other device on the Internet. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. 
You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, let's look at keeping the bad guys away from your Mac. In the far distant past, Macs had their reputation of being more secure than Windows machines. To some extent, that was true, and Mac users still face fewer threats than Windows users. It's still a good idea to give security some attention, though. You don't hear much about Macs on TechBiter Worldwide because I use a MacBook Pro far less than I use my various Windows computers, an Android phone, and an iPad. The MacBook Pro is a fine little machine, and it can use the dual monitors, keyboard, and mouse that are normally connected to the primary Windows machine, but Windows is the operating system I am most used to. I do try to make sure the Mac is as secure as I can make it, though. The Mac OS still has a far smaller market share than Windows, and that makes it less attractive to crooks, but Mac OS machines are popular in the offices of corporate managers, and that makes them a lot more attractive to crooks that want to break into corporate systems. Mac OS machines have security options that are similar to those found on Windows machines, and some that are options for those who understand Linux that lives beneath the attractive Mac OS user interface. There are some basics that everyone who uses an Apple computer should use to keep the machine safe, but there are more similarities than differences between measures for Macs and measures for Windows. Start by using a secure password. I am always shocked when I find a computer user who believes passwords aren't necessary. The Mac OS allows you to log in automatically. So does Windows. This is a bad idea. If the computer is stolen, anyone can log in as you. So just plan to take a few seconds to enter the password every time you start the computer. The password should be something that's strong and memorable. 123456 is neither. Anything you think is cute, such as, oh, say, let me in, isn't either. Think of something that you'll be able to remember, but that nobody can guess. Uppercase W, at sign, uppercase L, lowercase I, uppercase A, lowercase Y, uppercase S, 1966, uppercase P, lowercase A, lowercase U, lowercase L. There is a password. And here's the clue. We All Live in a Yellow Submarine was released in 1966 and was written by Paul McCartney. My primary Windows password, which I also happen to use on the Mac, is based on the names of several cats I've lived with, one component of an address where I've lived, and one partial name of a town. Think that'd be easy to figure out? Well, over the years, I have been owned by more than a dozen cats, I have lived at several addresses, and I have memorable associations with many towns. Even my wife would never guess that password. So, for your computer, you have a username and a strong password. Great! Does anybody else use your computer? If so, that person should have an account and a separate password. That's just simply good practice. Next, consider installing a protective application. Even though Macs are targeted less frequently than Windows machines, it's a good idea to run an antivirus program. 
Many of the organizations that publish antivirus applications offer free versions that omit some of the more advanced features. For most people, the free versions are adequate and might even be preferable to the ones you pay for. That's because the paid versions usually layer on functions that slow the computer's operation and can even get in the way. AVG, Avast, Bitdefender, McAfee, Kaspersky, Norton, and Total AV all have free versions. Be careful when you're installing applications. Before downloading and installing any application, make sure you're downloading it from an honest and reliable source. It is not uncommon for third-party download sites to package applications with add-ons you don't want. So always download from the developer's site or from a trusted resource such as Older Geeks. You'll find a link to the Older Geeks website on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Some people suggest downloading apps only from Apple's Mac App Store, because Apple reviews every application that's offered. But many people find that too limiting. Also, think about turning FileVault on. When activated, FileVault automatically encrypts the data so crooks can't access the information if they steal your computer. And FileVault requires that the user account have a password. If you keep little or no proprietary data on the computer, that might be overkill. But think about what's on the computer. Do you have banking information with account numbers on the disk drive? If you're in business, do you have a list of clients or a business plan on the disk? Would you want that information to fall into somebody else's hands? When you set up FileVault, it'll take a while to perform the initial encryption. After that, it's automatic and fast. You may notice some slight delay in opening files, but the decryption process is so fast that you probably won't. And last, install a virtual private network application. A VPN is essential if you travel with a portable Mac and use it on networks you don't control, and particularly if you connect via public Wi-Fi networks. Even for use at home, though, a VPN will keep your internet service provider from snooping. Without a VPN, the ISP can see your searches and might use the information. Some ISPs sell user information, and a VPN eliminates that risk. Internet connections will be a little bit slower, but you might consider that trade-off to be worth it. There is no shortage of crooks out there, so protecting your computer, whether it runs Mac OS, Windows, or Linux, is a good idea. When I was a kid, back in the days when televisions were first beginning to be installed in homes, a Farnsworth radio found its way into my bedroom. It was a floor model, about three feet wide, three feet tall, little more than a foot deep. It was my introduction to worldwide radio. There was the usual AM band, of course, but there were two shortwave bands, one that covered the spectrum from just above the broadcast frequencies to about 5 megahertz, and another from 5 megahertz up to 18 megahertz. What I found on the shortwave bands was interesting. Radio Moscow, amateur radio operators, shortwave stations from South America, and a lot more. The radio also introduced me to a hobby called DXing, listening for distant radio stations on the broadcast band, sending reception reports, and requesting a confirmation. That would be via what's called a QSL card. 
That radio no longer works, but I still have it because it looks cool. And it reminds me of the excitement I had as a kid listening to broadcasts from half a world away. There is a point to this rambling, by the way, so please bear with me for just another moment. Listening to distant AM radio stations was fascinating because every station was unique in those days, a reflection of the city it broadcast from. The powerful 50,000-watt stations in the East and Midwest were easy because AM signals bounce a lot at night. FM signals don't do that. That was all right. The radio didn't have an FM band. Fifty years later, distance listening is less interesting because just a few companies own nearly all of the radio stations, and many of the stations depend on network programming. Even if that old radio still worked, it wouldn't pick up much that I couldn't hear from home. But that doesn't mean that listening to distant stations is a dead hobby. It's just changed a bit with the times. Because there is so much repetition, it's hard to find something that's different from what you can hear locally unless you know the trick. And the trick involves turning off the radio, turning on the computer. Modern AM radios are all but useless anyway, though. I bought a new clock radio last year, and I use it to have the local NPR station wake me up at 6 a.m. When I tried to tune some of the local AM stations, all I heard was noise. There are three 5,000-watt AM stations in my area. One of those has its transmitter less than three miles from where I live. The radio wouldn't even play it without a huge amount of noise, so the radio is on for about an hour each morning, on FM, and that's it. Most large and medium radio markets have at least one or two unique stations. They're usually FM stations or low-power AM stations, sometimes daytimers, with limited coverage. But many of these unique radio stations do stream their audio on the Internet. That means I can listen to jazz from KKJZ in Los Angeles just as easily as I can listen to classical music on WQXR in New York City. Stations in Canada, Mexico, South America, Europe, and Asia are also available. The key is to find stations that avoid network talk shows and find the ones that specialize in local programming. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a way to find radio stations anywhere on the planet? Well, such a service exists, and it's called Radio Garden. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The interface is just a representation of the globe, so members of the Flat Earth Society should probably avoid the site. Each location with one or more radio stations has a green dot, so you can spin the globe and point to a city to see which radio stations are located there and which stations are popular there, even if they're located elsewhere. Possibly because some international borders are contested, the globe has no geopolitical markings. No borders, no place names. That means you need to know where the city you're interested in is located. It took me two tries to find Lagos, Nigeria, and it took me six to find Moscow. At least all of my other guesses were in Russia. But forget that. It's easier to use the search option. Just type the name of a city, a country, or a station. And when you find one that you're fond of, click the heart icon to make it a favorite. Not every radio station is a broadcast station. Radio Garden includes some internet stations and a few oddities, such as the South Bay Police Fire and Sheriff's Frequency and an airport scanner in Los Angeles. 
So if you're bored by the same old stuff on the radio stations you can hear with the radio, give your computer and radio garden a try. There's no need to tune around looking for spare parts. That section is on the website, where it always is. And this week, you'll find these articles. COVID-19 is forcing many changes, among them making security systems at financial institutions stronger, ways for people to enjoy an at-home vacation, expected changes in work-from-home policies by companies, and huge increases in at-home data consumption. Also, 20 years ago, the trial to break up Microsoft was nearing an end with an order that broke Microsoft into two pieces. Except that it didn't. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.